0: Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News episode 142, recorded on January 26th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you, although not so good to start out with
1: a story that gets me all fired up. Yeah, we have to start with bad news again, and this is that Rocket League will no longer be supported on Mac and Linux after March. (laughs) That really upsets me because A, we play Rocket
0: League in my household. B, I have been to some awesome Rocket League tournaments at Linux Fest Northwest, all on Linux, and it was a very memorable experience for me and the boy. And three or C, whatever I'm on, I'm so frustrated now. It was one of the example launch platforms for SteamOS, and so it's... I mean, it really stings, Joe. It just stings so hard because, A, I've bought this thing three times over for Linux. And Z, it has started a whole round of trolling by developers who are using this as an opportunity
1: to shame Linux. Well, that's one way to look at it. And yes, there has been some trolling, which uh, I'm choosing to ignore. But the reality of this situation is that Psyonix and Epic want to make changes. They want to upgrade the DirectX version And it is not economically viable for them to make the equivalent changes on the Linux version and the Mac version. Because combined, they say that Linux and Mac users form under 0.3% of the user base. So what's Linux then? Let's say 0.15, let's be charitable on that. It would be fiscally irresponsible of them to spend resources supporting Linux. They they just can't do that.
0: Yeah, okay, that is the hard number, and there's no avoiding. Yeah, when you combine both of Mac and Linux together, it's still only 0.3%, and considering it was one of the early games to support the platform, and it's a fairly well-known game, and it's often featured in esports, you'd think it'd be one of the more popular ones.
1: Well, yeah, the thing is that it is very popular in our community, in the desktop Linux community, but... I think that sometimes we delude ourselves about how popular desktop Linux really is in the grand scheme of things. And gaming on Linux is a tiny niche of basically a tiny niche of computing. And although, you know, a few hundred people that we know of might be into it, maybe even less than that, and they're very vocal about it, the reality is that gaming on Linux is not really. As, as big a thing as a lot of people like to pretend. I can't
0: argue with your core point there, but I think there are benefits to porting to Linux. It's a great way to find performance issues that can actually improve your primary platform's addition as well. But if you base it around the correct technologies, like Vulkan, for example, instead of DirectX, then future platforms like potential gaming Chromebooks or Android or even iOS and macOS with Molten VK. So you open yourself up automatically to just options if you adopt the right standards, although that does not necessarily apply in the case of Rocket League. They have started the development many years ago. They're committed to the DirectX platform. And then there's the, the other elephant in the room here, and they even pointed out in an update that we'll have linked in the show notes, the reality is Proton is a thing. And... They expect that it will continue to play under Proton. They say it won't be officially supported. But their argument backs up what you're saying, Joe. It just doesn't make financial sense. If natively 0.3% of customers are playing on Linux or Mac, and that 03 could use Proton, or at least a good portion of them, uh, how, how can you argue that? You could just see that conversation going nowhere in, in some sort of meeting, and, and there's, there's really just no way to argue it. It's just absolutely disappointing, I guess. As somebody who was a big fan of this initiative many years ago, to see we're still
1: at this point. Yeah. To be clear, you will still be able to play it offline after March, but you just won't get any updates, and you're just going to be playing one player. Yeah. And some people have said, well, why can't they just make it so that at least Linux players can play against each other online? And that's just a naive question. That, that takes resources to allow to happen, and there's still going to need to be some sort of security updates and, and you know potential bug fixes, which is all costing them money, which they just can't really justify. But they are going to refund people, at least, and th- they're breaking the, the Steam rule. Normally, if you've had a game more than two weeks or if you've played it more than two hours, you can't get a refund. But... Uh, That actually didn't work at first, but they said they're sorting it out and you can open a support ticket, so at least you can get your money back if you've bought it.
0: And this is a good reminder that it is a complicated path for developers to make a great game for Linux. And if they haven't chosen the correct path, which hasn't always even been available, they may end up here. If they want to move the game forward, if it's a popular game and they want to move it to a new stack of the technology they base their graphics on, a new set of APIs, There could be other games out there like this. I don't know if it's directly an indictment of the Linux platform, because I go back to my original point. If they had created this game in 2019 or 2018 and used Vulkan instead of DirectX 9, they may never be in this position. There may be some influence from upstairs at Epic, but from their explanation, it simply just comes down to updating from DirectX 9 to 11.
1: Yeah, it seems like a reasonable technical explanation to me, rather than Epic buying them and then shutting out the Linux players. It's clear that if Linux had a larger player base, this wouldn't be such an easy
0: argument to decide. They'd have to, they'd have to like, if it was, imagine just for a moment, just crazy here, but imagine if it was 10%. Then maybe they'd be a little less inclined to just cut it off. But there's nothing we can do other than just get more people using Linux and than convincing them to pay good, hard-earned money for games that are not free software.
1: Yeah, or convince devs to use open standards like Vulkan to make the games in the first place. And maybe Stadia will help that. Who knows? In the meantime, good
0: old reliable wine that just continues to chug on decade after decade (laughs) has released version 5 now, which is remarkable because I remember discussing when version 1.0 came out. But there's some major improvements in this new version of wine. Yeah, a lot of that
1: work on Proton from
0: CodeWeavers is landing in 5.0. Yeah, this has been a it's been a year in the works, so a lot of stuff that has just sort of been accumulating hits here as the official release. Also, dramatically improved multi-monitor support, Vulkan 1.1 support. But maybe something that's more significant, I don't know yet, is they've changed the way they build modules. In the past they built them in the ELF format, the executable linkable format which is the generic file format for executables in Linux systems. Instead of building it as an ELF, the modules have been built as the Windows PE format, which is the Windows file format for executables. And the reason why that matters is games and piracy checkers are looking for those differences. And by Wine shifting over to the Windows PE format, it's one less thing to trigger these gotcha systems or any kind of detection system to realize it's not on Windows. That's a major leap. I have yet to test if it really makes a difference. I'm definitely looking for feedback, linuxactionnews.com slash contact. But all of the other features combined with this new executable format makes Wine 5.0 really impressive.
1: I really hope that means that gamers can get around this anti-cheat stuff because that is one of the biggest concerns that I heard regarding that the Rocket League news, is that they'll inevitably add some of that and then it'll break it in Proton and then you'll be stuck only using Windows to play it. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'd love to hear feedback on. But, Joe, what if you ever wanted to, I don't know, run a desktop
0: application on an Android device? Maybe you don't have access to a desktop. You only got Android. Or maybe you're running Android on your desktop for some reason.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe you're running Android X36. This is something that I'd not really thought about much before, but I read an article on XTA developers that pointed out that Wine is available for Android as well. Now, because Wine is not an emulator, as we know, it means you can't use x86 applications on an ARM CPU, but increasingly we're seeing more of the Windows ARM stuff, so it it seems interesting. I'm going to have to try this out, I think. That's
0: pretty slick, Joe, but um, I'm more about running my Android apps in the cloud, and Canonical might
1: just have something for me. Yeah, Anbox Cloud that they've announced this week with quite a lot of fanfare and unfortunately not a lot of detail. Oh, I, I get
0: it. I mean, what detail do you need? It's Android apps in the cloud. <laughs> Actually, think about it. I, I can see a couple of use cases for it. It creates an on-demand experience for gamers. So you could have phones that are lower specs, say free phones for certain carriers that are still fully capable of running games. You could even sell that as part of a monthly subscription. Uh, this is a big way for carriers to say, hey, look at the capability of our 5G network. But outside of gaming, I mean, think about all kinds of ways to test multiple different types of virtual Android devices in the cloud. You could have different, maybe even thousands of hardware configurations, and you spin it all up at once and test your application and laugh in the face of fragmentation.
1: Yeah, I can definitely see a lot of use cases for it, but what I couldn't seem to find was to what extent this is open source and how easy it is to run on premises. I know they've partnered with Packet to make it possible to run it on premises, but to what extent are you going to have to rely on them? It's just all a bit unclear, really. There's a lot of kind of hype and business speak, but there's not a lot of detail about the technical aspects of exactly how it's going to work. It's kind of, if you have to ask that, then you can't afford it. I don't know, you, you basically have to pay them, it seems, canonical, to get this going. I think it is very much a service, whether it be
0: on-premises or in their cloud. actually kind of like that, in a way that you have the option of having it on-premise but still have the ease of management of something that's outsourced and taken care of. Businesses and enterprises love that kind of thing. They just love that. So that's sort of in line, I think, with who the potential customer base is. I don't think it's so much you or I individuals, but companies that want to build an experience around this. Again, I go back to the carrier image that comes
1: preloaded with a stream Fortnite button. Oh, yeah, definitely. This this is not aimed at um, tinkerers and people like me, but it's just a bit disappointing to me because the good thing about everything that Canonical does is it is all open source. And although, yes, a lot of it is aimed at the cloud and enterprise, you can actually dig into the code, you can run it on your own test systems or whatever, whereas this seems to be... Uh, maybe I'm completely off base here, but just the way this has been marketed in a couple of blog posts on the Ubuntu blog is like that doesn't really matter to them, and it's just all about enterprise and cloud.
0: I could agree with that. The only way I might change that is those details don't matter to the customer base they're pitching this to, so they didn't write about
1: it. Yeah, you're right, and hopefully I'm wrong about this, and in uh, the next few days we'll see some some more technical details of it. But, you know, look at this. Anbox was originally written for the Ubuntu phone, which, as we know, they abandoned and the UbiPorts guys picked it up, but... What we're seeing here is them pivoting that technology that they have originally written to something that can actually make them some money here in the cloud, as usual.
0: I had a similar thought when I read this story. My thought was, it's nice to see a real coming together of different canonical technologies into a solid service offering. And I I think it speaks well for the company. Take the service or its licensing aside the ability to take an acquisition, take different technology expertise and and layer a service offering on top of it with their Ubuntu Advantage program additionally, because it's 1804 and LXD powering this whole thing. So it really is, yeah. A coming together of everything. And and then they've productized it. It's it's a I think a good sign for Canonical's ability to execute right now.
1: Yeah, it's further evidence of them getting very serious about the business side of things and actually making some money. Google's getting a lot more serious
0: about Chrome OS in education and is giving a pretty generous update to the
1: support of future devices. This was a bit confusing this week because there was some reporting earlier on that suggested that all new Chromebooks would get eight years of support, and then with various updates and kind of a back and forth with Google, it turns out that some of the Chrome OS education devices will be getting eight years of support, but not necessarily every Chromebook.
0: Right, so previously, and I guess, Essentially, still, most Chrome OS devices will receive six years of software support. But Google is extending the length of time it plans to support new Chrome OS education devices with security and platform updates. So starting in 2020, with initially two devices, one from Lenovo and one from Acer, they will get automatic updates until June 2028. To pay for the additional support... Google is also increasing the price of its Chrome education upgrade, which is a one-time license that school boards can purchase, which is usually a pretty large scale. So it's going from $30 to $38 per device, which doesn't initially sound like a lot. But if you're buying 5,000 or 10,000 of them, it can add up. But it means that investment also lasts considerably longer. So I think when you look at the cost to support it's a pretty reasonable price increase from $30 to $38.
1: Yeah, and you're not going to get eight years of support out of an iPad, are you? You're going to get, what, about five or six?
0: Yeah, I mean, they'll continue to use them for another five, but (laughs) they won't be supported. (laughs) (laughs) The other knobs Google is turning here to make these more attractive to educators is alongside the new devices, they're adding new search features to the Chromebook app hub that teachers use that make it easier for the teachers to find specific programs, so they've tailored a UI for educators to find specific things. But here's another one. I don't know if how this would have affected you as a child, Joe, but Google is rolling out originality reports, a feature that has been beta testing. It's designed to help detect plagiarism. So it looks at, ev- and ha- quote, helps both teachers and students <laughs> spot plagiarism because it can look at everything, and of course it has the power of Google. Um, and they're feeding this machine all the time. And then different teachers, when you assign them like an English teacher role, get access to these features, which will start rolling out over the next month. It's going to support multiple languages. And you could see, like, as an educator, you'd be looking at that going, hmm, eight years of support, helps with built-in app search, takes care of a lot of the maintenance, it's easy to shuck these things when they got to go, and now it helps detect plagiarism, and they keep adding features like this, really making it ideal when you add in the management
1: features and all that stuff too. Plagiarism was not a problem when I was a kid because I didn't really have access to the internet. I had no Wikipedia. The only thing I had was Alta Vista on school computers, so uh, I wrote all my own essays. Thank you very much. No cheating from me.
0: I I may have done it once, and it may have been one of my best-graded papers, but uh, I was a pioneer. It was the 90s. so I, I'll have to tell that story one day, but not today. No, not today. I, I really like to see this. I. Th- I'm not a huge fan of Chromebooks in schools, but I'm also a pretty big fan of my text dollars being used effectively, and eight years of support is pretty reasonable. I've seen sectors of the industry where some systems have 30 years of support. I know it's not reasonable, especially for education devices, because students are very hard on them. So
1: eight years is a pretty reasonable compromise. Do you really think that any of these devices will last eight years in the hands of kids? It seems very unlikely to me.
0: Possibly not. I could also see different uh, sellers that come up with agreements with the different districts to do replacements and swaps. And the thing is, too, when you buy 5,000 of these, you end up with a few hundred in the IT department that you can use for Frankenstein parts. And you
1: can keep machines running for a really long time that way. Yeah, true, and it's more about having a reference device that if you're going to replace them, and then it's not something completely different. So it is a very clever strategy by Google to basically take on Apple in education and Microsoft to some extent. But it also rubs me a little bit the wrong way. I suppose I'd rather have them use Chromebooks than iPads. At least it's a bit more like a proper computer and you can get a terminal and stuff on there if you want to. I mean, there's reality... And then there's what I'd like. In Chris's
0: world, Endless would have some sort of massive education deal and just be a total dominator in the education space. And these students would be using Linux technologies with Endless hardware and an Endless desktop, which I think would be great for schools, And that would be the education workstation of children of the future. But we don't live in that fantasy world. We live in a world where you need a large corporation to make deals with large districts and shuck and jive on prices with uh, hardware manufacturers in between. They get squeezed on both ends. And, yeah, that's the world we live in. And Chrome OS is, well... I guess it's not Windows. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. Actually, sometimes I wonder because at least Windows would be a, a local company. Microsoft's in my backyard. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know, Joe. I don't know. But I do know that I I have little faith that the Free Software's Upcycle Windows 7 initiative is going to be successful.
1: Yeah, so the Free Software Foundation posted this article, Upcycle Windows 7, I'm talking about how Windows 7 has reached its end of life now, and the best thing that Microsoft could do is make it free software. You could make
0: the environmental argument
1: because it would keep machines out of the
0: landfill, um, and Microsoft's big on that these days. They write on the uh, Free Software Foundation post, we call on them to release it as free software and give it to the community to study and improve. As there is already a precedent for releasing some core Windows utilities free software... Microsoft has nothing to lose by liberating a version of their operating system that they themselves have say it's reached an end. And you know, that's kind of, I mean, it doesn't take into account like intellectual property agreements and the fact that there's tons of components of Windows that have been licensed from third-party creators and they don't want that open sourced I suppose they could rip all that out. But where they kind of go a little bit off the rails with me, Joe, is when they get kind of demandy. Quote, we demand that Windows 7 be released as free software. Its life doesn't have to end. Give it to the community to study, modify, and share. And then to like, try to make it as, if you don't do this, then you don't love Linux. They write, we want more proof that you really respect users and users' freedom and aren't just using those concepts as marketing when convenient. Which, like, as if these two are related at all. My question to you, is this a PR stunt or do they actually think this could work and are sort of unaware of all of the legal entanglements that would exist with something like that.
1: That is a very difficult question to answer, and I actually had a conversation with my wife about this, and she said that, yes, that's exactly what it is. They're not really expecting Microsoft to do this. This is just an attempt to create some debate and maybe move the Overton window slightly, and it's not them just being completely deluded, but I don't know, I had really hoped that when Stallman left the FSF, they would get real and sort of become a bit more, well, in touch with reality. And this kind of thing suggests that maybe they're not either that or they're just doing epic trolling. Because apart from the stuff that you've mentioned, there's of course the issue that a lot of Windows 10 is based on Windows 7. And not only that, to throw code over the wall is not straightforward. You have to spend resources cleaning it up and there's some probably some quite embarrassing stuff in that source code. So it, it just could never happen. And they say the, the precedent and they link to the open sourcing of calculator. Now, even open sourcing that calculator was probably quite a big effort to clean the code up compared to an operating system. I, I just really hope this is them trolling for publicity.
0: I'll give you my most skeptical take on it. Is it's a grab for mailing list signups that they can then pester for donations because they end with We need your help to send Microsoft a strong message. We want 7,777 supporters to take a stand with us, not just for ourselves, but for future generations. Please stand with us today and sign below to show your support. Now, you're not signing up for a mailing list about this in the future. It's not like a uh, change.org petition. You are signing up for their primary mailing list. So what it says right here, this is the Free Software Foundation's primary mailing list. Subscribers receive a monthly newsletter called the Free Software Supporter, which includes news about the FSF activities over that month, as well as other news and requests for donations. It's a a grab-for-a-mailing-list sign-up, and it sounds like I'm being really skeptical, but the reality is, for an organization like the Free Software Foundation, that mailing list is their lifeblood. It is extremely valuable, and they've gotten 4,111 new subscribers thanks to this already. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we need more people hearing the good news about the foundation and Free Software and maybe it just takes a slightly disingenuous campaign to get them the good word. I don't know how I feel about that, but I guess you could justify it that way.
1: That sounds a little disingenuous to me though. Well, to be fair to them, you don't have to sign up to the mailing list to sign this petition. There's a checkbox which says, sign me up, which you can just leave unchecked. So of those 4,000 odd people who have signed, who knows how many did check the box? It is, it's is—it's kind of your instinct to check the box. Well, because the way it's arranged, it's like you're, you're not done unless you check that box. That's what it kind of looks like, but you can sign up without it.
0: Yeah, and you're right. And perhaps a lot of people do, and maybe it has nothing to do with the mailing list at all, and they just happen to put that in there because what a great opportunity. But when I look at all, and I look at the likelihood that this is going to succeed, and if I want to believe that the people running the foundation are intelligent, and I do want to believe that, then I have to believe that they know this would never happen because of, like you said, current products are still based on this source code and legal entanglements, not to mention the support costs. And Microsoft, because of their stature in the industry, would need to do it properly. So it need to be staffed. It's just never gonna happen, right? and then you combine that with this sort of jab at the end that's designed to really rile people up, and then this mailing list sign up, which is right here, right where you sign where you're signing the petition that's the checkbox, and then you hit submit um I, I don't know uh, could be could be totally wrong on this one, but I just don't like the feel of it, and I like you was indeed hoping for a change in tone and this is a little
1: silly, but I guess it raises awareness. (laughs) Well, we're talking about it. It's interesting, though, that they've edited the original post, because when I first read it, there was language in there talking about how Microsoft had poisoned education. And it seemed like if you really want them to do this, then that's not the way to go about it. And maybe after people pointed that out, they cleaned it up, I don't know. but. Yeah, I I have to believe you. I I want to believe that this is just a a way to draw attention to the FSF and to try and get people to sign up so ultimately they can get some donations and keep going. You
0: would kind of expect any other organization of this nature to try to take advantage of industry news to raise awareness to what they do. I mean, that might just be considered part of the business. I'll tell you what, though. If it ever happens, I'll be the first to go on air and talk about it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, could you imagine? And also, would it be good for Linux if Windows 7 was open sourced and you could run Windows 7 and get get it continued to be patched and fixed and improved? Would that be good for free software?
1: I guess. Well, yeah, because it in of itself would be free software.
0: For a single free software project, yes, it would be a software project that is free, but the other free software out there may suffer. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I actually want Windows 7 available to the community. I, let's, a lot of nice things have happened on the Linux desktop since Windows 7, and I wouldn't want to lose that. Well, imagine how good this would be for the Wine project. Yeah, imagine how good it would be for all kinds of different individuals. I mean, for sure. Now, I guess for overall for, uh, for humanity, Joe. It would be good, and I'd give it a go. I mean, I love React OS. I think that's a lot of fun, so I'd probably give it a try. Yeah, imagine React OS, but actually works. Well, you know, if it happens, we'll talk about it right here, and uh, we have an episode every single week telling you what's gone down in the world of Linux and open source, and you can get new episodes by going to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the different ways to get our feed. And you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And if you're looking for a smile, I recommend user error. Error.show. Go listen episode 83. You can jump right in. One of my favorite episodes in a long time. And I love the conversation around improving Linux conferences. So check that out.
1: Error.show slash 83. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Rissington. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next week. See you later.